Uh, Last week, I uh, preached a sermon on the nature of truth, uh, an absolutely fundamental question in any age, really, but especially in our day when the very existence of truth is under such attack. Uh, The concept of truth is fundamental to all rational thought, as we saw, fundamental to our understanding of and relationship to reality fundamental uh, to, and, uh, to our understanding and practice of morality as well. And I spoke about our need as the people of God in this place at this time to be salt and light to the decaying and lost culture around us, our need not to retreat from a depraved and corrupt world, but to boldly confront that world by proclaiming the truth of the Christian worldview in the face of the lies and the absurdity and the chaos that surround us. And I I did mention that there is no more pervasive illustration of our culture's descent into absurdity and its willingness to suppress the truth in unrighteousness than the transgender movement. And because of that, it's been my desire to spend some time in Grace Life bringing the Word of God to bear on the question of human sexuality. The LGBTQ movement has absolutely hijacked our culture, whether it be in pop culture entertainment like TV, music, and movies, whether it be the educational system which seeks to normalize sexual perversion in the minds of children as they indoctrinate them, really groom them for sexual deviancy, Uh, whether it be the medical system which pressures adults and even children to mutilate themselves by life-altering surgeries because of those who struggle with gender dysphoria, or whether it be the legal system which can be leveraged to bankrupt those who dare dissent from this new sexual orthodoxy. If we are going to have any hope of being salt and light in this culture, We have to be equipped to confront this perverse sexual credo with a biblical doctrine of sexuality, to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and His right as King of the universe to define good and evil in this world. And as Phil said recently in one of our Q&As, this is likely to be the precipitating cause for persecution of the church in the coming years. That legal system will be leveraged against you and me if we refuse to bow the knee to calling evil good and good evil. And so, we need to be equipped to give the Bible's answers to the culture's perversions, and we need to be convinced that those answers need to be given, or we will buckle in the face of threatened persecution. But as I began preparing to preach on biblical sexuality, I realized very quickly how central the notion of identity has become in this discussion. Our culture has actually conflated sexuality with identity. And if we ever act, or according to them, our sexual appetites define us. We are what we desire. And if we ever act out of accord with our basest desires and impulses, we are somehow not being true to our authentic selves. I'll talk more about this in coming weeks, but fundamental to the issue of the transgender movement is I am what I feel like I am inside, and sometimes what I am on the outside doesn't match that. And so rather than conforming my inside, my feelings, to what is objectively true on the outside with my body, instead of that, I will conform my body to what it is I feel I am on the inside. It's interesting, isn't it? I am who I say I am. It sounds very similar to what Moses heard at the burning bush. I am who I am right? I'm the one who defines my identity. The problem is that is not how Scripture defines mankind. 
And that made me realize that before I dove into biblical sexuality, I needed to back up and consider mankind's identity at its most fundamental level. And it's not just sexuality where our culture struggles with identity. The last several years have found us in the greatest racial tensions in America since the civil rights movement. The ethnic tribalism and divisions have exploded, especially in the last five or so years. But that's not altogether surprising because the world tells us that men and women are, in, are evolved animals whose ethnicities are literally different races, different species. And then on top of that, there's the pinnacle of our moral barbarism, the legally protected right to kill defenseless little babies in the wombs of their mothers. But why not if, once again, we are just evolved animals with no inherent value or dignity? Why can't we simply discard the undesirable or the incapable? Survival of the fittest, right? Legal abortion is a criminal level of brutality and cruelty that derives from fundamental failure to understand our identity. Homosexuality and transgenderism, ethnic partiality and those tensions, legal abortion, all of that is the result of having absolutely no sense of who or what we are as human beings. And so in this cultural moment, the importance of the doctrine of man is difficult to overestimate. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Where do I come from? What's gone wrong with the world? What's gone wrong with my own heart? Why am I not the way that I want to be? What does it mean to be human as opposed to being an animal or a plant? How can I know what's right and what's wrong? Is there an absolute objective standard for good and evil according to which I must order my life? Or is morality subjective and relative? Does man live in an ordered world with a fixed identity? Or is the universe random and chaotic with man free to determine his own identity? These are the questions that a biblical anthropology, doctrine of man, answers. The Bible is to man what the owner's manual is to your car. Detailed instructions about what we are and how we are to function direct from the one who has created and designed us. And it's our society's rejection of the Bible's answers to these questions that has the world in the chaos that it's in. Now, in the first sentence of the first chapter of John Calvin's magisterial classic, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin famously writes that nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts— the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of ourselves. Our understanding of who we are is inseparable from our understanding of who God is and how we relate to Him. And it's never been more important for Christians to find our identity in what God says we are. And that identity begins with the doctrine of creation. It begins with the fact that we are not animals evolved from goo. Still less are we semi-divine demigods free to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own souls. The very first thing to say about man is that he is a creature. This is where our, our identity begins. It means that we are not ultimate We are accountable to the God who has made us. We look to Him to tell us who we are and how we must live. And then following upon that, in the same breath that we learn that man is a creature, that we learn that a a fundamental aspect of our identity is that we are created, in the same breath we learn that we are created in the image of God. We are image bearers who have inherent worth and dignity 
as we reflect the glory of our Creator. You see both of those realities inseparable in that passage that Steve read for us earlier this morning, Genesis 1.27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This is the first thing Scripture says about our identity. Psalm 100, which Sheldon read for us at the outset, Psalm 100 verse 3, it is He who made us and not we ourselves. So most fundamentally, we say that man is the direct creation of the Creator God. In their systematic theology, Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley say this, the Bible roots our understanding of man in creation. Human life has purpose and meaning because we did not come into being by accident or by our own will, but by the will of God who created both us and the world in which we live. Therefore, we belong to Him and exist for Him. I mean, that is just such a huge therefore. Therefore, we belong to and exist for Him. They go on to say the doctrine of creation anchors our worldview in God. It directs our lives to His glory and protects us against idolatry. Now, questions concerning the doctrine of man involve us in a study of the doctrine of the creation of all things. And the biblical doctrine of creation is always under attack from those who would seek to undermine the biblical worldview. If you want to free man from his accountability to his Creator and the totalizing claims of the law of God so he can be left alone to sin in peace, you start at the very root. You seek to undermine the doctrine of creation. If there is no God, then man isn't a creature accountable to his creator. And we are so far downstream from that very thought. The reason that we're in the absurdity of transgender craziness, the reason that we're in the middle of ethnic tensions and legalized abortion for 50 years, is because before that, there was this attack upon this most foundational doctrine of Christianity the creation of man, the direct creation of man by the Creator God. But, of course, there's just one problem with rejecting the biblical doctrine of creation. There's a whole creation to explain away, right? And it's a tall order to be looking around at the glories of a creation, to be breathing in the blessings of a bountiful personal Creator each moment, while at the same time denying that any Creator has created the creation that you're living in. And enjoying. And so, what has Satan done? He has focused his attacks on the doctrine of creation itself. And so, there have been many false theories uh, that have been propounded since the beginning of the world. There are myriad polytheistic accounts of creation in which the material creation is said to be the result of sexual reproduction or warfare among the gods. There are pantheistic accounts of creation, like in Hinduism, which totally erase the creator-creature distinction, and they say that the creation is God, and that God is the creation. You know, you hear this kind of pantheistic understanding of things, even in New Age philosophies, when you hear people say things like, well, the universe has been kind to us, or the, the, you know, that kind of a thing. The universe has done this. They personalize the inanimate creation uh, because they've denied the personal God who is actually there acting and ruling creation. You see it some in Gnostic uh, philosophies where creation emanates out of the being of God. There are also panentheistic accounts which say not that God is the creation, but that He is in every aspect of creation, sort of like God is the soul of the universe and the physical creation is like His body. But that also does not adequately maintain the creator-creature distinction. And then really the opposite side of the same error, materialism, claims that physical matter is all there is. The universe is eternal, and there is no immaterial. 
They say there has been no creation. What we see just always was in some form. And that is the fundamental assumption. That is the a priori, dare we say, unscientific presupposition of atheism, of Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, any sort of model that depends on the Big Bang. Why? Because the stuff that had to bang together had to always be there. Otherwise, you're saying, where are those materials coming from? Oh, the aliens. All right, where do the aliens come from? And we go back and back and back into an infinite regress. So no, it's just that the materials were eternal. And the uniting factor in all of those false theories of creation or explanations of the phenomenal world is the worship of the creation at the expense of the worship of the Creator. Pantheism and panentheism ultimately call for the worship of the creature by failing to distinguish God's being from the creature's being. The creation is God. Worship it. Materialism, having evacuated any place for an immaterial creator God from their worldview, in the absence of the true God, make the physical creation God. Right? Since there's no true God really there, we'll make a God out of what there is. And they impute divine attributes like eternality to the creation. And it's just such a testimony to the fundamentally religious nature of the heart of man. We are inveterate worshipers. We must worship something. And if you have a sin-fueled agenda to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as says Romans 1.18, an a priori commitment to reject the biblical creator because you don't want to be subject to his law... Well, then you do exactly what Romans 1, 23 to 25 says you do. You exchange the glory of an incorruptible God to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The universe has no creator. It becomes our God. But against all of that truth suppression, Scripture testifies with uniformity with clarity and with authority that the one true God, the God of the Bible, has created all things by the word of his mouth in the span of six literal 24-hour days. And if we are going to have any hope of confronting the lies of our culture with the truth of man's identity, first of all, as the direct creation of God, as a creature, we have to be able to defend Scripture's teaching on six-day creation. The two issues are inextricably linked. They stand and fall together. And it's why if you say you believe in a young earth or in six-day creation, you get laughed out of every classroom, every newsroom, every break room that you walk into. Because the, the natural man has to scoff at this most basic fundamental claim if he's going to be able to create his own identity and live according to his own morality. And so we need to be able to defend this most foundational doctrine. You say, wait a minute, I know plenty of believers who hold to a Christian worldview and reject six-day creation. I have some friends or family who are theistic evolutionists, or maybe they're not even that, they're just old earth creationists. They, they agree that, that God has created the world, man's the direct creation of God. It just took a long time. It's much more science informs us of these sorts of things. And they would agree with everything you said about man's identity as a creature. You don't need to be a six-day creationist to reject the postmodern descent into absurdity, Mike. Well, that's true. I certainly don't want to accuse old earthers of being in step with the sexual revolution. But I am willing to say that these brothers are inconsistent on this point. And And they might not realize it, but by compromising Scripture's clear teaching of six day creation, they give ground to the atheist or to the evolutionist who wants to reimagine man as an animal and let him give vent to his most base desires. You say, how does that work? Because when you allow the infallible and unchangeable text of Scripture to be interpreted through the lens of the always fallible and always changing precepts of contemporary scientific consensus, you yield in principle the authority and sufficiency of Scripture to the unbeliever. Oh, oh, science doesn't agree with that? Oh, okay, let's, let's re-examine. In other words, if the Bible doesn't mean what it says when it claims that God created the world in six days, 
Upon what consistent basis can we insist that the Bible means what it says when it claims that God has directly created man in his own image? And when the Bible says that he created them male and female, and that male and female are fixed categories, and they're not changeable, and so on. We would cut our legs out from under us. And so we need to start at the foundation. We don't interpret Scripture in light of science. We interpret science. We interpret the observations we make about the phenomenal world in light of Scripture. And so in undertaking a defense of man's identity as the direct creation of God, we must take up a defense of six-day creation. And to do that, I'm going to give you six, appropriately, six biblical arguments for the truth that God created the world in six days, and then we will rest. <laughs> now you say, hang on, this, another, I got another problem with you, Mike. You're about to turn to the Bible to argue that God created the world in six days, but the people we're arguing with don't accept the authority of the Bible. And so they're not going to care what you have to say or what we have to say. Well, first, I answer that objection by pointing back to last week's message. We established that, that God is the God of truth, that His Word revealed in the Scriptures is the Word of truth. And we showed how when you reject that claim, you have to deny reality and embrace absurdity, which is a demonstrated failure of a worldview when it embraces absurdity. But in addition to that, my response to that objection is, since when does the hard-hearted unbelief of the world give us leave to disobey our marching orders to go into all the world and preach the gospel? We don't say, oh, you reject the authority of God? Okay, I'll find some other authority. It's like a criminal saying, I reject the authority of that taser officer. I reject the authority of that Glock 9 millimeter. Oh, okay, I'll put that away then, sir. You know, no, we don't put away the weapon that God has given us to wield. We wield it with the authority, the inherent authority that it has. We preach truth no matter what the enemies of truth accept or reject. We, and we trust that in the actual proclamation of the word of truth that God would open blind eyes and grant the new birth. It's to the living and enduring word of God that we are born again, 1 Peter 1. And this was the gospel that we preached to you. So we don't tone down our proclamation just because there's questions over authority. We simply declare the authority of God because He's God. All right, well, first argument for six-day creation is that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative. Many objections to the literal truthfulness of the Bible's creation account are arguments about genre, if you can believe it. They claim that Moses didn't even intend to write a record of faithful history. He meant it as poetry. And they point to a poetic like poetic-like refrain as evidence, right? And there was evening and there was morning, one day and a second day. And and they point to beautiful parallels between the lights on day one and the shining celestial bodies on day four, the waters on day two and the sea creatures on day five. And they see, see the parallelism? It's just poetry. You're not supposed to take poetry literally. It's, just to me it's meant to communicate a, a, a grand theological truth, i.e. God created, but it's not supposed to tell you exactly how God created. But even so, First, they're wrong about it being poetic. I'll talk to you about that in a moment. But even if we were to grant that, poetic language and artful structure can still reveal literal truth, right? The 10 plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7 to 12 are presented in a skillful, structured literary form. Should we reject the historicity of the plagues? 10 plagues, that's the perfect number, and it's just about God's judging sin. Didn't really happen. No. Matthew lists six sets of seven generations in his genealogy of Jesus. Should we regard that record as unreliable? No. Literal truth can be presented in artistic form without calling the historicity of those truths into question. But even beyond that, there are very clear indicators that Genesis 1 to 3 is not Hebrew poetry, but is historical narrative. I'm going to give you several reasons for this. One, we don't see the synonymous parallelism that characterizes so much of Hebrew poetry like we see in the Psalms or in the poetic portions of the prophets. 
We, we, there are grammatical markers of poetry that are absent from Genesis 1 to 3. And instead, what we do see is the plentiful use of what's called the Wayak toll. And I know you don't like that word. I don't really either. It's, it's the name of a verb construction in the Hebrew language that moves narrative along. It, it's, a, it's a marker, a literary marker, grammatical marker that says uh, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And it totally characterizes historical narrative. Just like you would see, say, in the books of Kings or Chronicles, which nobody disagrees is a historical account of the kings of Israel. In fact, Dr. Stephen Boyd at the Masters University uh, did a study where he analyzed passages in the books of the kings, again, which no one disputes are narrative passages, and he found that the use of this verb form in Genesis is actually statistically higher than the, the rate that it's used in the book of the Kings. And you see it. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Those and, 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 then, then, then constructions, which is the, the wow construction with the imperfect verb, the why told, those that's the key grammatical indicator of Hebrew historical narrative, recounting a historical record of events. Another reason that we know that it's historical narrative is that we see references to the Garden of Eden right alongside to other biblical place names that no one believes are non-historical. Some people will sometimes say that Genesis 1 to 3 or maybe even Genesis 1 to 11 is non-historical. But most everybody agrees that once you get to Genesis 12 and forward, the author intends to be writing a factual record of history. But one chapter after Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, verse 10, you have a reference to the Garden of Yahweh, right alongside a reference to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as a reference to the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So if we're not intended to take Eden as a literal historical place, with what level of consistency can we say that Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt and Zoar are real places? no consistency. Just as those other places are historical, so also is the Garden of Yahweh. And we we see other references to Eden throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 28 and and 31, Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2. You can do a search. A third indicator that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative is the genealogies that appear throughout the later uh, chapters of Genesis that link the creation narrative in 1 to 3 to the rest of history. So Genesis 5 treats Adam as a historical person who fathered real children, who then fathered children of their own. And we go from Adam to Seth all the way down to Noah and his sons, which brings us to the post-flood world. And then Genesis 10 and 11 include genealogies of Noah's sons, which takes us all the way to Abram in Genesis 12. And then we have the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And then in Genesis 46, we have the genealogy of Jacob's sons through to Joseph. And so again, the question is, where do you draw the line? You can't say that Genesis 1 to 3 is non-historical myth while the rest is history because Genesis 5 treats Genesis 1 to 3 as history by linking Adam to Seth to Noah and so on, by linking those folks to Abraham in chapter 12. And we could even go further than that. You go to 1 Chronicles 1 to 3, and it takes the genealogy from Adam all the way to David. And so if we reject the historicity of Adam and the events recorded in Genesis 1 to 3, we either have to doubt David's historical existence, which is absurd. We have extra biblical records of David's existence. Or we cast suspicion on the consistency and reliability of Scripture. I mean, even Jesus' genealogy in Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And so you get the point. If later portions of Scripture depend upon and refer back to previous events as if they were actual historical events, and if those historical events didn't take place, well, then there's doubt cast upon the historicity and reliability of those later portions of Scripture and not just the opening chapters of Genesis. And one more besides this, Jesus reads Genesis as historical narrative. And his opinion is pretty important. In Mark 10, 6 to 8, Jesus quotes from the first wedding sermon in Genesis 2 and not only treats it as true history, but he says that it took place, quote, 
from the beginning of creation. Which means that the marriage of Adam and Eve did not occur after thousands of years of evolution. Similarly, in Luke 11:50 to 51, Jesus pronounces woe upon the scribes and he speaks of how the leaders of Israel shed the blood of the prophets, quote, since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So, Jesus considers the murder of Abel in Genesis 4 to have happened at the foundation of the world, not thousands or millions of years after the foundation of the world. Jesus, friends, was a young earth creationist. And so the fact that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative is a decisive argument for six-day creationism, if for no other reason than it means that we should read the text to what it, as what it seems to be saying uh, on its face. It's not poetry. It doesn't invite figurative, non-historical interpretation. It means what it says. That's number one. A second key argument for six-day creationism is that God created ex nihilo, or out of nothing. Out of nothing. God did not create the universe with pre-existing matter, which would have to be the, the case if you embraced theistic evolution. He did not, as the theistic evolutionists argue, endow created, with creation, endow created reality with potencies which spontaneously, by energies intrinsic to them, then produce the various forms of life. Well, God created man with the ability to, or creatures with the ability to evolve into man. No, no, no. God made everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the phrase heavens and the earth is what we call a merism a figure of speech that stands for all that exists. It's when you state sort of the two ends of the spectrum and it's designed to describe everything in between. He's created heaven and earth and all things in between. You see that in passages like Psalm 146.6, which I think is quoted in Acts 14.15. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The point is, there is nothing that God did not create. There is nothing, there's no eternal matter. There is only eternal God. Hebrews 11.3 says, What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Right? God did not take eternally existing materials and turn them into something else. As Romans 4.17 says, he called into being that which did not exist. That there, Romans 4.17, is an explicit statement of creation out of nothing. He calls into being that which does not exist. And then very related to that is the fact that God did not only create ex nihilo, but he created in verbo, which is to say by his word, by his word. We just mentioned Hebrews 11.3. The earlier half of that verse says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. By the Word of God. We see that plainly in the creation narrative itself. Genesis 1 repeats over and over again, Then God said, and it was so. And so often you hear people say, well, again, Genesis tells us that God created, but it doesn't tell us how God created. Sure it does. It says he spoke the world into existence. He created by his word. And an important text is Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God created by his word. And then verse 9 of Psalm 33, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Those ands there are also the same kind of verb form that I was mentioning before. He spoke and it was done. There's no lapse of time between he spoke and it was done. The text doesn't allow for us to understand by that. He spoke Millions of years passed, and then finally the evolutionary process yielded stars and fish and creeping things. No, he spoke, and immediately upon his speaking, it was done. 
that passage will not allow for an old earth. And then fourth, six-day creationism is substantiated by the existence of the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, establishes the pattern of a six-day work week and a seventh day of rest on the basis of the fact that God created in six days and rested on the seventh day. Moses, who wrote Genesis 1 in Exodus 20, treats Genesis 1 as the straightforward history that it is, and he appeals to the six days of creation as the foundation for the Sabbath rest. He says, in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That passage, Exodus 20, 11, is rendered absolutely meaningless if God did not create in six literal days. And again, that just fits so well with the straightforward reading of the text of Genesis 1. It's a historical sequence of creation in six literal days. We see that in the repetition of the evening and morning refrain, which reflects an ordinary cycle of night and day and is never used figuratively. People say, oh, it's a refrain like a poem, and so it's not literal. No, it just means there was evening and there was morning one day and a second day and a third day and so on. We see it in the Hebrew term yom, a word used for the word used for day, which when it's used with a number like one day in Genesis 1-5 or a second day, Genesis 1-8, it's never used in a figurative sense to mean anything other than a 24-hour period. You say, well, but a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Yeah, that's when it's, an, it's indefinite, you know, the, in the day which man created God. When it's used with, an or, with a number like this, it's always a 24-hour period. So Exodus 20, 8 to 11, tells us in explicit terms the exact same thing that Genesis 1 tells us in explicit terms in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. Fifth, Scripture uses three different terms to repeatedly emphasize that man is the direct creation of God. So number five, man is God's direct creation. He did not evolve through divinely guided processes. He was made. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 2.18, Genesis 5.1 says that God made the man and the woman. In Genesis 1.27, Moses uses the term created three times in just that one verse. And Genesis 2.7-8 says that Yahweh God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. So made, created, formed, there's this repeated emphasis that man is not the product of evolution, but that he was created as an animate being. There is no inanimate progenitor to the modern man like evolution would demand. And more than that, man was created as the image of God. So again, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Genesis 5.1, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is how God made man. Man is not some sort of lower hominid man who evolved into the image of God. No existing creature was invested with the image of God. Man didn't receive the image of God. Man was the image of God from the beginning of his existence. As we said before, Jesus says in Mark 10, 6, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. Where is he getting male and female from? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So man is God's direct creation. And then number six, he is his unique creation unique, and that uniqueness separates man from the rest of the living beings and thus requires that he not be understood as simply just another of the animals. And there are several ways that, that, that the Scripture testifies to man's uniqueness. One is by his being the climax of, his, of creation, right? He's created on day six, after everything else, and only after man's creation is God's work pronounced very good, Genesis 1.31, as opposed to just good, right? Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, these, all these things were, very, were good, but on day 6, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Two, man's creation is unique in being pictured as the result of determinate counsel. Chapter 1, verse 26, with everything else, 
it's been let there be, and there was. But with man, it's let us make. Let us make. There's a note of deliberation there, of consultation within the plurality of the Godhead, suggesting wisdom and intentional planning. Three, no other creature is said to be the image of God. Everything else is made after their kind, but man is made in our image. Man stands in the closest possible relation to God, distinct from the animals. Four, we also see uniqueness in that because, because man bears God's image, to kill a man is to merit capital punishment. Genesis 9, 2 to 6. Look, God kills animals to provide Adam and Eve with a covering in 321. God was pleased with Abel's, Abel's sacrifice of animals in Genesis 4, 4. If someone kills an animal, it's not necessarily a problem. It could be, but it's not necessarily a problem. But Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And five, also related to that, no other creature is tasked with being God's vice regent and exercising dominion over all the other creatures as man is. Chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, let them rule, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing. Psalm 8, 6 says, you make man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so the fact that Genesis, his historical narrative, that God created out of nothing, that he created by his word, that the Sabbath day testifies to the truthfulness of Genesis 1, that man is the, the direct creation of God and the unique creation of God, all of that testifies to the truth that six-day creation is true. Now, of course, not everybody agrees with that, and so they raise objections. Some people say it's impossible to have light which is created on day one, without the sun, which is created on day four. But I think it's rather obvious that God could create light without the sun. I mean, surely we know that there will be light in the new creation without the sun. Revelation 21, 23 says, The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so God creating light without the sun shows his independence of the celestial bodies and his all-sufficiency to provide for his creation of himself, as he will do again. Another objection is that too many events take place on day six for it to be 24 hours. How could Adam have named all the animals in time? Well, for one thing, he may have named the kinds of animals, right, rather than every individual species. For another, don't forget that God brought all the animals to Adam. He didn't have to go searching for everybody. And three, Adam's pre-fallen intelligence and creativity may be, may be far beyond our comprehension. He, he may have not been subject to the same limitations we assume he would be in a post-fall world. And finally, we, we can't forget that according to Genesis 7-2, Noah brought two of every kind of unclean animal and seven pairs of every clean animal onto the ark in a single day. So, it's possible. I'd rather trust that God can figure it out than rewrite the Scripture because I can't figure it out. And, of course, there are other objections, as well as totally divergent theories of creation proposed like the, the gap theory or the day-age view, the framework hypothesis. And we need to understand those claims and be able to address them. Don't have time to get into it now. Some of you might have already remembered that I presented a version of this material uh, this past summer at Sundays in July. If you're interested in why the gap theory, the day-age view, and the framework hypothesis are not viable accounts of the biblical doctrine of creation, I refer you to that message in July of 2022. But one sort of category of objection that I'll address further is the claim that the Adam we read about in Genesis 1 to 3 was not a historical actual person, but instead stands for a group of highly developed hominids to whom God gave moral and spiritual consciousness. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley explain what this view teaches. They say, in this view, the, race, the human race descended from a group of several thousand individuals who lived about 150,000 years ago. 
In this view, Genesis 2 is understood to refer not to the literal creation of Adam and Eve, but is a symbolic allegory of the entrance of the human soul into a previously soulless animal kingdom. Several problems that we can bring the previous reasoning to bear on, but first, the Bible testifies to man being not just the direct creation, but the singular direct creation of God, a unique direct creation, rather than some sort of group of hominids or man-like animals. So Genesis 2-7 tells us that God formed a single individual from the dust of the ground, the man. Genesis 2-7, he formed the man from the dust of the ground, not a clan or a tribe or a people. And then it goes on to say that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, that is the man's nostrils, not the nostrils of hundreds or thousands of hominids or primates or what have you. And then the verse says, the man became a living creature, singular once again, and not one of the living creatures became a man, right? But man came into existence as a living creature. Further, in Genesis 2.18, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. And alone cannot describe a clan or a tribe or a people. And the reason it's bad for him to be alone is because he can't reproduce and fulfill the divine mandate to fill the earth. And so it just doesn't fit. They raise other objections. They say, well, Adam, the word Adam, doesn't refer to a particular individual named Adam. It refers to mankind generally. It describes the everyman, not any man in particular. Well, yes, sometimes Adam refers to the whole race, just man, mankind. But there are other times where it unmistakably refers to the man, the father of the whole race, the individual that God created and named Adam. So in Genesis 5.3, Moses says, When Adam lived 130 years, he became father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, this is not referring to the human race in general living 130 years and fathering a son. It's referring to the man, Adam. Another objection claims that Genesis 1 to 3 only tells the history of Israel, uh, but the, the genealogies record Adam and Eve as the parents of the entire human race. Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah, they're not Israelites. Israel doesn't even exist until Abraham at the earliest then perhaps not even until God changes Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32. And besides that, Genesis 3.20 calls Eve the mother of all the living. But why is this so important? Why do I take time to address this particular objection concerning the historical Adam? Well, again, in light of this, this thesis concerning the basis of man's identity, consider with me five implications of the doctrine of a historical Adam created directly by God on day six of his creation. If we don't have a historical Adam, we lose the basis for the dignity of mankind because then man wouldn't be anything but another animal and there would really be no basis for the humane treatment of people over animals. People kill animals for food. They kill them for sport. You kill a man or a woman for food or for sport you are liable to lose your own life. Unless, of course, that little man or woman is in the womb. What accounts for the difference, though, if Adam is not a historical person and man is just a high-functioning animal? Not only that, historical Adam is the basis for the unity of mankind. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 says this, And he, God, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. The fact that every human being has descended from the one man, Adam, means that there are not multiple races. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as European humanity or African humanity or American humanity or Asian humanity. Those may be ethnicities, but the difference between them are superficial characteristics that describe our behavior and our cultural backgrounds, not what we are in our essence. 
something like 99.8% of all of the genetics of every human being on the earth are identical. So there is one human race. Our culture is suffering so mightily from ethnic strife, which is largely being fomented by the secular left. And as the people of God, we want to do something about that, don't we? We want to help. But we're not going to help by embracing the world's solutions. We're not going to help by adopting critical race theory, which is just as racist as the problems it's supposedly trying to solve. The only way the church is going to successfully battle these ethnic tensions is to insist upon the biblical worldview, which starts with the unity of the race in Adam as image bearers of Almighty God. If you remove that, you remove, you undermine at least, the basis for ethnic unity, and you clear the way for conceiving humanity as genuinely distinct races of people. Which, by the way was the stated intention of Darwinian evolution. Any of you ever read the full title of Darwin's famous book? It's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, comma, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Dar- Darwinian evolutionary theory was the foundation for eugenics. The unfavored races, like the Jews, according to Hitler, and the blacks, according to Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, were inferior, and so they needed to be snuffed out so mankind could progress to our next stage of evolution. But the biblical doctrine of creation and the historical Adam destroys all of that nonsense because we all have the same daddy. Calvin wrote this. He said, It was God's will that we should proceed from one fountain, Adam, in order that our desire of mutual concord might be the greater and that each might the more freely embrace, his, uh, embrace the other as his own flesh. We belong to one another because we are created by the same creator and descend from the same man. And of course, There's brokenness before you have unity in Christ, right? Christ is the perfect image of God who restores the the broken image in us and brings us back to a unity that is greater than we could ever have even had, even as creatures and sons of Adam. Now we're we're, we're born again sons of the second Adam. And so we press all people toward that pinnacle of unity. But of course, it starts with recognizing that we are not different races, but that we're, we're one race descended from one man. Then, not only the dignity and unity of mankind, but the historical Adam is the basis for the Bible's doctrine of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man, sin entered into the world. Romans 5.17, By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says, For since by a man came death... And then uh, verse 22, in Adam all die. The Bible's explanation for the corruption of this world is sin. And the Bible's explanation for how sin intruded into God's very good creation is the sin of the one man, Adam, who stood as the federal representative of the entire human race so that his sin was counted to be our sin and so that all creation was cursed as a result of his transgression. Without Adam... Where has the brokenness of this world come from? Was the world God created and called very good, created with sin, evil, and death in it from the beginning? Did he create evil directly? If not, is he somehow overthrown by forces of evil outside his control? See, without a historical fall of a historical Adam, we lose the doctrine of original sin. And we lose the doctrine of a good and righteous and sovereign God. And more than that, we lose the gospel. The historicity of Adam is a gospel issue. Why do I say that? Because in those passages that I've just quoted, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Adam is as integral to the logic of salvation as Christ is. Okay? So dignity, unity, doctrine of sin, doctrine of the gospel, number four. 
That entire paragraph in Romans 5 is Paul's doctrine of Adam and Christ as the two heads of humanity. Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. And verse 19 of Romans 5 summarizes things well. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made sinners righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, for since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also, Christ, came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul contrasts Christ with Adam and even calls him the last Adam. So you can't have the gospel without a historical Adam who historically sinned because without Adam, you can't have a historical Jesus come as the antitype of Adam to accomplish redemption. If Adam has not sinned in history, then Christ hasn't atoned in history and we all remain damned in our sins. You see, this isn't about Hebrew literary criticism. This is about the gospel. This is about Christianity itself. And then number five, as we said before, there is no way we could deny the historicity of Adam and not lose any and all consistent basis for the authority of the rest of Scripture. Again, because even aside from these genealogies that get us from Adam all the way to David, all the way to Jesus, there are numerous passages of Scripture that refer to Adam as a genuine historical person. Just a few here. Job 31, 33. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam? Hosea 6, 7. Like Adam, they, tra- they have transgressed the covenant. Romans 5, 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, which not only affirms the Genesis account of the fall of man into sin, but also treats Adam as a historical figure right alongside Moses. Maybe Moses didn't exist. Maybe he's just a, a figure, a character that's meant to teach us theological truths, but whose historicity we don't have to insist upon. It's ridiculous. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, Paul says, Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, he's reading Genesis 1 to 3 and treating it as if it has consequence for how we understand our identity as men and women today. 2 Corinthians 11.3, he treats the, the fall as history and Eve as a historical person when he says to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then in 1 Timothy 2.13 and 14, Paul's entire basis for his instruction concerning the distinct roles for men and women in marriage and in the church is this, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, if you don't like the conclusions that Paul draws from that teaching, like, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but that she should remain quiet and learn with all submissiveness. If you don't like that teaching, what have you got to do? You've got to undermine the basis upon which that teaching is given. If Adam and Eve are not really historical, what's the basis upon which we can enforce this spirit-inspired understanding of our own identity as men and women and the proper roles we, we engage in as a result of our identity? See, that's the entire point. Enemies of the truth desire to be entirely free from the accountability they have before their creator. And they realize that it's only when we can unmoor ourselves from the doctrine of creation in the image of God that the basis for our fixed identity is undermined. Beaky and Smalley make an insightful comment on this. They say, if we rip the Genesis account out of the flow of history and regard it as a myth, it loses its authority to reveal God's will for all mankind. However, if we view Adam as the first man God created, then we are able to apply the Old Testament in the same way that Jesus and Paul did. 
to illumine what it means to be male and female. In this age, when the church is so ravaged by moral relativism, militant feminism, and homosexual activism, we are blessed to have a solid basis for our sexual ethics in God's creation ordinances. See the connection? That connects this week's sermon to last week's and to the ones to come. The point is, if these later texts of Scripture, like 1 Timothy 2, all treat Genesis as literal history and Adam as a literal historical person, then if we say that the events of Genesis didn't take place or that Adam was not a historical person, the reliability of the entire Bible is overturned. If you don't have Adam, you don't have the Bible. And if you don't have the Bible, you don't have a reliable revelation of truth from the mouth of the triune God of truth. And that means what we saw last week, you've got the chaos and the absurdity that we saw and that we live in every day. But against all of that, let this be heard with clarity. This is who you are, Christian. This is your identity. You are not an evolved animal. You are not a slave to your own basest passions and impulses. You are not of no more dignity than to be discarded when society determines that you are no longer useful, convenient, or wanted. And neither are you a little mini-god, unaccountable to anyone but yourself, fabricating, speaking your own truth, and declaring your identity into existence. You are most fundamentally a creature, and so you are accountable to God as your creator, subject to the identity that He has given you, subject to the law of His mouth as the rule of your life. You must order your life as He says you must, under the lordship of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's returning to judge the living and the dead. Or you must suffer the consequences of divine justice, both in this life, in which the way of the transgressor is hard, and in the life to come, in which judgment will be righteously poured out on all who do not bow the knee to Christ. You are a creature. Not just a creature. A creature made in God's image. And so you're the unique objects of His favor and blessing possessed of an unspeakable dignity that sets you apart from the rest of creation. And next time I'm with you, we'll speak more about the implications of our being image bearers as well as creatures of the Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your your blessing now in, in the midst of perhaps a lot of information, a lot of instruction. We pray that you would supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit, seal your word to the hearts of your people not just so we might know that and move on, but so that that knowledge would inform all of our thinking, all of our understanding, the way that we interpret the world as we interpret it through the grid of your truth. And as we seek to bring the gospel and then defend it to those who are trapped in the lies and the darkness of this world, we pray that you would prepare hearts of the family members, the friends, the co-workers, the acquaintances of men and women in this room. Prepare those people's hearts to hear from these men and women. Soften their hearts to receive the truth and equip us to answer these sincerely held objections that seem just so unbelievably uh, contrary to, to nature in the natural man. Indeed, they are contrary to his, his nature as a sinful being. We pray that you would prepare the heart even now to receive the truth of the gospel and to open blind eyes through the proclamation, the faithful witness of the people in this room. And Lord, we, we do simply desire to declare the lordship of Christ over all of life. This is, this is why we do this. We, we, we want to love people, but more, more ultimately, we want to glorify God. We want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we announce that Christ has come and that he is given his life and risen from the dead to save sinners 
and that he is ascended and seated at the right hand of God and reigning and is coming again. We want to declare that lordship even over every relevant aspect of people's lives today. We are not culture warriors, but we are slaves of Christ, and we do desire His Word to be sounded forth in this His creation. Help us to be salt and have that preserving influence. Help us to be light and and illumine the darkness. Help us to stand fast in the days that are coming which would seek to undermine our confidence in these things. May we be faithful to the end until you call us home to be with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.